Welcome back to another episode of Chats with the Starving Artist. Thank you guys for tuning in again. Thank you those that are leaving comments, feedback, subscribing. It's really been really, really awesome so far. And um, 2017 is off to a great start. Um, so thank you guys. If you guys haven't left a comment, if you guys haven't left reviews, if you haven't left feedback, please be sure to do so. It helps immensely. Um, as far as being able to get other people on the podcast, but then also um, ratings create visibility on iTunes, on SoundCloud. Um, the more ratings that are left, the more people that, that see it, so on and so forth. So if you can, leave a rating, one star, two star, three star. If you want to leave five stars, please do. If you think it's great, if you want to hear more of it, email me, whatever the case may be. Um, so yeah, we're back, second episode of 2017. I'm here in D.C. actually at the National Museum, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, with a really, really dope person. I'll just let her take it away, one intro, and, and welcome Timothy Ann Burnside to Chaz with the Starving Artist. Thank you so much for taking your time out of your very, very busy schedule to, to sit with me and chat really quick. Um, about some creative stuff, so thank you. Absolutely, thank so, you for asking. Yeah, no problem. So real quick, just tell us who you are, where you're from, what your form of creativity is. Okay, so I'm originally from Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, grew up in a small town of less than 600 people, the very top of the state. I found my way to DC in 2003 for an unpaid internship at the American History Museum, mm -hmm. across the street from where we are right now, and never left. And I've wow. been with the Smithsonian ever since. Um, in different different roles, um, whether as an intern or research assistant, um, doing collections management work, doing archival work, doing program production, um, basically anything I could possibly do to test all of the waters in the museum field. And then ended up landing on um, the, the more three-dimensional curatorial route mm -hmm. and um, developing exhibitions and collections and did that at American History for a little while, and then um, came over to the new museum in late 2008, maybe early 2009, and I've been with this museum ever since. Awesome, so this, when did this, the concept for this museum come to, to life? Like you said late 2008, 2009, we're in 2017, so mm -hmm. this didn't just happen in 2016, it took a lot of time, so when, when was it kind of etched in stone that, hey, we're going to create this museum for African-American history and culture? So the legislation went through in 2003. Okay. Um, the idea for the museum dates back to just after the Civil War. Um, the, it, it, the concept then was the uh, Negro Soldier Museum hmm. to commemorate African-American soldiers in the Civil War. And that evolved over time into a general um, African-American museum. And then, thanks to... Um, people like John Lewis pushing it through in 2003 it was signed into law yeah. and then um, our director Lonnie Bunch was hired and the fundraising started and so we did construction to build this building um, took between I want to say four and five years mm -hmm. um, and then we spent um, you know a, a really busy 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 um, six months or so preparing the inside of the space for our grand opening, which was just last September. So that included three months of object install okay. in the building. So wait, construction started when again? I want to say 2010? Wow. 2011? I mean, we had a huge hole in the ground for a really long time. Yeah. And that was kind of intentional. Right. Because 
nobody wants a hole in the ground on the National Mall. Yeah. So if there's an eyesore like that, <laughs> people are going to rally around whatever's supposed to be there actually happening. Yeah. And also the museum has uh, four, four floors, four levels underground. So a lot of the construction, yeah, yeah, like literally, had to happen underground. It was not visible. So people didn't understand what was going on and what was taking so long when we were actually building out four levels and three of those are exhibition spaces underground. Yeah. Talk about a foundation. Like that's crazy. That's a hell of a foundation for just a, a, a building. And then this, I'm looking at it as a monument mm -hmm. in addition to the other, what, five, six monuments that are here in D.C., you know, whether it's um, the National, the Washington Monument, the White House, um, the Pentagon, the, uh, the Capitol, the Lincoln Memorial, what am I missing? I'm probably missing one. World War II. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, a Vietnam bunch of... Vietnam Wall, MLK. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. And MLK was the most recent before the museum. Mm -hmm. So this is great things that I guess are just happening within African-American history and culture. So what, speaking of foundation, what was your sort of foundation like coming out of Wisconsin? Were you, did you always have an interest in sort of like art and, and history? And even did you, is that what you studied in school when you went to college? Like, where did your foundation kind of start to get you in this world, or was it something where you came out here for the internship and you just kind of got hooked on it and said, "Hey, I'm going to stay in this world." It's all of the above. Um, my dad is a musician and a mm. historian. My mom was a singer, but um, she's now a state mom, senator in Wisconsin. Your mom's you amazing, yeah, by yeah. the way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, so I grew up in a, and she's from Cleveland, my dad's from Chicago. Okay. So my mom came in like with the rock and roll influence and you know, I had every Beatles album memorized probably by the time I was like 12, Yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and then my dad um, brought in more of the American roots, I guess we're calling it now, but bluegrass and you know, he used to play with people like Don Hartford and, mm. and others who like the foundational elements of a lot of modern bluegrass. Um, but he also was really into general folk music and, and the blues coming from Chicago um, and every kind of music you could imagine. So I was surrounded um, with that as, you know, my entire childhood. And then they also had me start piano lessons when I was four. Mm. So I was learning to read music, you know, so I was getting to know music as a language simultaneously with actually like learning to read and write. Yeah. Um, so that always came second nature to me. And so I continued that my whole, my whole childhood. And you know, my dad is like, on the historian side, I'm a descendant of General Ambrose Burnside of the Civil War. Okay. And so my grandfather, you know, kind of put the bug in my dad to be thinking along um, history in terms of collecting. And you know, my, my grandfather collected stuff. My dad just started to collect stories. Hmm. Um, and so his interests in history and music overlapped a lot too so you know he has the only recording of banjo orchestra music at the library of congress for example wow. you know like this random shit that's epic um and so we he has a whole banjo orchestra like set at, you, you know instruments in the house you know and that's what i'm growing up in okay. <laughs> so it, it was very eclectic um and actually before i was born he that banjo orchestra toured the midwest with a a, a grant from the wisconsin arts board hmm. which is why it was recorded okay in the first place um so then in high school um i was recruited by the band director to be in the percussion section because none of the guys who played the drums knew how to read music <laughs> and didn't care about 
whether the timpani was in tune or not, you know. So wait, how did you trip? Because I wanted you to get back to that. Like that's reading piano music versus reading percussion music is too, because I played an instrument as well and percussion notes, reading that, it was like foreign. If yep. you just play versus playing just a regular instrument, to say percussion is a different sort of, I mean, it's a different kind of instrument, but right. like how did you It's a different transition? way to read parts yeah, and to totally. be, yeah, ensemble. Well, um, a lot of it, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, a good, I'm a good sight reader. Hmm. That's part of it. That's amazing. Um, that's, a, that's a gift. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, not to whatever, but I mean, there are pieces that I studied in high school that I could still sit down if music, music is in front of me, mm. I can play it. Okay. Because um, it's in my brain still somewhere. Wow. Um, it's better, better than me. I, I think can. I have relative pitch, too, is what was determined. Like, when I went to college, this is fast forwarding, but like, I was placed into the um, most difficult music theory class, having never had taken any music theory in my life. And um, quickly changed classes because I was in a room full of people with perfect pitch who had been studying music theory, music theory and were theory. in college to be professional musicians. They were yeah. in the conservatory of music, and I was like, "What the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> Get me out!" <laughs> wow. So, but that was the the band director was like, "I need someone who knows how to read notes mm. and can can you know hold their own with the section," and so I quickly became the default person to play the timpani, to play the bell parts or the xylophone or marimba. Because for me, it was really easy to go from 10 fingers to two mallets, you know? That's a, that's a hell of a transition, yes. Yeah. And then in college, I went to four mallets when I studied mm. in the percussion studio. But that got me into, um, you know, playing in a jazz band, playing vibraphone in a jazz band. And, you know, in, in my little hometown, you know, we had a graduating class of 35 kids. So there wow. were roughly between 30 and 40 kids in each class, but our band was 55 people. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, like, it, 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 it wasn't like, like the, the <laughs> traditional band nerd that you're thinking of. Like It's like freshmen and, soft and seniors. Like. It's everybody. Wow. Everybody. And the thing was, if you were in band, like it's, let's say, if you were a band honor student, right, mm -hmm. like in the honors band and all that shit, you were probably also on the student council and you were probably also like one of the star athletes and you were probably also, you know, yeah. whatever. So, I mean, I was class president all four years just because nobody cared to, <laughs> you know, change it. Yeah. And then I was student council president and I was National Honor Society president because okay. it's like, well, that's what she does, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it's a small community. A small, Everybody yeah. kind of has their role. How many people were in your town? Um, the town itself is just over 400. Um, the, so my high school... I, as a white girl of Irish and Welsh and whatever else descent, I was in the minority mm -hmm. because of the reservation. So what was Redcliffe Reservation, town? Bayfield. Bayfield, okay. Redcliffe Reservation um, is Ojibwa, Chippewa. Mm -hmm. And there's a fascinating story about the migration of, of the Ojibwa people and coming to Lake Superior and coming to Madeline Island and you know the sacred holy destination and then the French come and kick them off. That's where the French fur trading company, the American fur trading company was right. based and all of that. So there's that, that, I grew up in that kind of an environment as well. Wow. So instead of like, you know, American geography in high school, I took the history of tribes in Wisconsin. Wow. Taught by some of the pioneering figures in native education programs um, you know, b using their their teaching methods based on oral traditions within the communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't study Ojibwe language, but you, if you did, um, there are three I think schools within the UW system who accept that as a foreign language credit. 
So it's this totally like. So you, that you speak that. I don't speak okay. it, but like I knew growing up, like how to say you know cranberry sauce or this or that or whatever because you you know we learned buzzwords yeah. along the way, and I have friends who are absolutely you know fluent. So it's this really crazy coming together of the the kids from the reservation and then everyone else is white. Everyone else is white. What's the, yeah, what's the, what's the, That's what's it. the splits? That's it. What's the like city splits? 60, 40. Okay. Native to white. Okay. Yeah. In, in school anyway. Okay. And the only like other people we had legit were the Coast Guard families because the Coast Guard is, has a huge station up there. And so like, I'll never forget the Solteros moved in down the street and became our best friends, my sisters and I. And they were brown, like a different kind of brown, right? You know, right, and right. it was, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't weird or different, yeah. But it was just like, oh, okay, we, all right, we never thought about the fact that we don't have anyone who speaks Spanish in the community, yeah. For example, so it was it was a culture shock as far as like them being new, but not, not. Not it being jarry, it wasn't a jarring. It wasn't a strange shock. concept. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. And you know, now there are there's a little bit more diversity up up there. But, you know, that and it it wasn't like there were often, you know, challenging situations and you know, there still are, and especially that reservation is like so many others in the Midwest, like it exists below the poverty line. Right. Like it's not this East Coast or other parts of the world or country model with wealthy reservations that you know are rolling in cash from a casino. Yeah, like there is a casino, but these I feel like communities anywhere, aren't you know thriving because of it. Yeah, anywhere there's a reservation, there's generally a casino. Yeah, there's, it's, the correlation is I, I don't really know what the specific correlation is, but I feel like there's always. Oh, that's a, a whole other. That's yeah. a whole other podcast. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so I kind of, so I'm coming out of this community, um, and then I was. Um, so yeah, I mean, honor student, honors choir, honors band, like, did every kind of competition, you know, you could imagine in high school, whether it was a piano solo or, you know, um, singing in different, like, the madrigal, all this shit. But, but again, it wasn't like we were the, the uncool nerds. Mm -hmm. Like, all the cool kids. That's what you did. You, you did that You were involved in everything. Yeah, you were involved in okay. everything. Okay. And so that turned into being recruited by the percussion studio at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, okay. which has um, a conservatory of music and a college, consistently one of the best you know, liberal arts colleges in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really appealing to me because I wasn't sure if I wanted to get a BM, a Bachelor's of Music, but I knew I wanted to keep playing. Mm -hmm. And that was like the best of both worlds for me. Mm -hmm. So I could, I could go and I, I, I knew I was probably gonna be an English major. And that's a that's a drastic turn, right? Because that's a whole like I figured that was a nice general yeah. you know lane to be in, um, but I wasn't sure about the music stuff. So I came on board um, to Lawrence and started like the my my professor Dane Richardson treated me like a music major, like the first year, and then I started my you know track for an English degree as well. But then my second semester. Um, I took a history class with uh, Jerry Poder, who was new to the school, and got that bug. Mm -hmm. And so from every, every, almost every single semester afterwards, I had a, I had a class with him. Mm. Um, and so we like kind of grew up at the school together because you know, I, was, I was part of the, the, the courses um, 
in, that went in sequential order, but I was one year above. So you were excelling. I was I was in the history classes with the sophomores as a freshman, yeah. and then I continued on that track. I did the same thing with my yeah. major. Yeah, and so they all thought I was in their class. <laughs> um, so I started to kind of, at that point, think about, without really realizing I was thinking about it, all the relationships with these three areas of study. Mm -hmm. um, and I eventually decided to not be a music major officially because there were a lot of requirements that I wasn't that interested in, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like, I, as much as I love playing the snare drum and the triangle and all that stuff, I didn't really want to spend <laughs> a month on the triangle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, mm, not, so, it wasn't, so, wasn't my scene. <laughs> okay, so the three years study music, English, and history. Yes. All right. Okay. Yes. So I could cheat a little bit in my, and he knows this now, in my, because um, I studied marimba primarily, eventually with Dane. So I went from, like I said, two to four mallets. And, and so I would take these piano pieces, though, that I had already played, like, in junior high or something. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, oh, I found this piece. I'd love to transcribe it for marimba. Like, it was a brand new thing. And then wow. I would be able to not have to practice as much because I already knew the, I already knew the piece. So that was your hack. Right, that was my hack. And he, he figured it early. out because he walked okay. by a practice room one time and I was playing a piece on the piano that I was trying to like pull off as brand new. <laughs> and I got busted. So you, so you flipped it. You, yeah. You made it into your own thing. Okay, so did yeah. you end up having to continue transcribing that? Um, yeah, he made me finish it out and then he was like, okay, now I'm going to assign you. I'm going to assign you new, new things. But at the same time, um, instead of taking a sabbatical for a whole year, um, Dane takes, because the school's on trimester, so he would take once, one semester he would go to Ghana, one semester he would go to Brazil, and one semester he would go to Cuba, and he would alternate those um, as often as he could for his sabbaticals. So we studied um, drumming from the Volta region of Ghana, the area people. We studied carnival drumming from Brazil, wow. and we studied bata from Cuba. Wow. And so I was in those three groups as well. Mm. So... Um, that, you know, studying people like Michael Spiro and you know, mm. Jesus Stizat, the only, the only guy to ever have me play a drum kit is David Garibaldi, Tower of Power. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that's the kind of shit we were doing. And so I was, I was learning how to play this stuff. And also, you know, he incorporated, you know, he would always make sure we understood the significance of the history. Because particularly with the, the drumming from, from Ghana, it's very... Um, Symbolic. It's yeah. very ceremonial, and you know you respect that, of course. And um, the stuff from you know playing playing the biggest surdu drum in a samba line, like come on, it's it's so much fun. Yeah, so much fun. Um, but I started to think about connections between what I was playing and studying on one side of the street with what I was studying on the other side of the street. So. Hmm. My focus for history kind of ended up being race relations post-Reconstruction, sort of. Um, but the work I did, um, I connected, for example, in one, in one paper, uh, it was the role of spirituals in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. so it was con but it was connecting a lot of the sonic elements um, that I was kind of learning about you know, in the percussion studio, yeah. and kind of taking that thread through the progression of the spirituals um, and how they were transformed by enslaved people here, and then readopted or adapted to by um, communities during the civil rights movement. Wow, that's so it. that that progression. Get the you just said like this <laughs> sonically adapting spirituals, like that's a whole thing in itself because you think about it like 
some of those spirituals, you know, more than likely, and you probably know this because you did the, the, the research and, you know, ad ad adapted it, probably started out like humming. You know, and that's kind of where like those melodies came mm -hmm. from. Like it's I, when you think about like I, that's something I would never think about yeah. until you say it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like sonically spiritual. Is this like a spiritual? Is this an acapella? Like what are you talking about? Like but also like the roots of the rhythms. Right. Um, so the the bell patterns, for example, you think of the clave. You know, in some parts of the world, yeah. in other parts of the world, it's the bell, um, and how those like really kind of are the foundational elements for almost every kind of syncopated instrumental music in America. Yeah. Um, so that's automatic. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, the, for folks at home, the screens in the conference room are that's on sick. timers according to how the sun moves around the building. It's pretty sick. Part of our green initiative. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's not magic. It's like, who just pressed that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thinking about all these different things and then, and then um, eventually the shift that I, that I, kind of had when I came to DC was thinking along more the contemporary culture lines. So um, I'm in the Archive Center and I'm processing jazz collections of you know, Doc Cheatham or whomever it, it might be, um, the Ellington, Duke Ellington collection, for example. And I was appealing to the Archive Center because I could read music and I had a, a history background. Mm -hmm. So that cut the, the processing time in half um, for someone who didn't know, you know, couldn't look at a piece of sheet music or a manuscript that wasn't labeled. Right. So you had context and like a frame of reference based right. off of your background. Right. So then, but the, the shift was when I was thinking about, I took it like a little, well, like one step further, because I'm thinking about, okay, I'm working with these jazz and these soul and these other collections, and I'm hearing it in hip hop. So I'm literally working with the music that is being sampled. So it's like music history almost. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So then. After doing all of these things and all these programs and all of these, you know, again, like trying to get as much experience as I possibly could, um, I convinced the Smithsonian in 2006 that, I mean, not just me, but a team of people that, that yes, we, we should be recognizing hip hop. And mm. so for the first time, we collected from significant people in the hip hop community, um, and their artifacts are still, still over there. So that was like that kind of move, like the continuation of it, because then you look at the sonic thread that continues from those bell patterns, from those vocal traditions, you know, other parts of the world, brought here again and ad adapted and adopted by different communities. And now it's got a new, you know, chapter yeah. with hip hop. Yeah, I mean, I mean, hip hop is is affects culture in a lot of different ways, and that's that's a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it affects culture in a lot of different ways, and then even, I think you just kind of said some key things, again, that I wouldn't have even thought of on my own, looking at kind of like the sonic and rhythmic patterns in spirituals, you know what I mean? And kind of then even going from there, from spirituals, hip-hop, obviously, like what other uh, genres of music have descended from mm -hmm. that, you know? I mean, pretty much everything. In a way, that's crazy. You know? I mean, I, I figured that that about, was the answer, but yeah, I was just you like, think about like what hip hop is built on. It's built on soul. It's built on rhythm and blues. It's built on the blues. It's built on funk. Where does funk come from? Funk, you know, like you start to just, it's this web. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's amazing. But you, if you go back far enough, it really comes down to just a few sonically, just a few elements. Oh, man, that's that's amazing. So you. That was an initiative. It was, I don't know if you would call it an initiative. Yeah, but that, that was, was something an you you brought. You pushed for that. Yeah, 
really nobody hard. else brought it to the table. Um, the it was. So I've consistently been the youngest in any department at the Smithsonian by like 10 years, my whole existence here. Cause I mean, I came here, I was 23 years old. Mm. And so 2006, I'm 26. And wow. my you know, colleagues and peers are not listening to hip hop. They do right. not understand it. Nor are they probably listening to you or your opinions just right. because you're the young person. I'm a young white woman talking about this black music that they right. don't understand. Right. Um, but what they did get was that it meant something because it was not going away, and it was so incredibly pervasive and still is. So it was more like, okay, yeah, we don't understand why we should recognize it, but we know we should, yeah. so let's do it. And then that turned into an understanding. Well, how do they feel about it now as far as like understanding Oh, now they're real grateful why. that they have it because they were so ahead of the curve. You know, mm. that, in 2006, the climate for, for preserving and documenting hip hop music and culture was just the opposite of what it is now. It was yeah. really just starting. Um, you didn't have all these university programs and fellowships and yeah. archives and you know whatever. That, that wave was about to hit. And so they're grateful that yeah, they had a Grandmaster Flash turntable already. Yeah. You know, they don't, I mean they may, I don't know what they're gonna do in terms of collecting now, but when I left, I took all my people with me. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so this, I mean, even though this is a Smithsonian Museum, it's it's two separate entities. It's mm -hmm. all under the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian, but yes, like it's a separate sort of thing. Totally different staff, people, you know, moving parts to make each museum function. Mm -hmm. um, we share collections all the time. There are some things that we have on loan from American History that are here, mm -hmm. and they'll borrow from us, and that will happen. But in terms of like the staff doing the work, you know, I will. If I get a great lead on something that's a better fit for the American History Museum, I will pass that on, of course. Um, but you know, yeah, when when I came to this building, um, you know, the people that I had worked with and now I've known for almost ten years, mm -hmm. you know, kind of came with me. So you've essentially been able to take like, you know, your sort of creative and artistic influences from your mother and father being involved in music, your own involvement in music then looking at your father and or your grandfather, you know, one of them being a pack rat, mm -hmm. for a glorified mm -hmm. pack rat, the other one being a quote unquote collector or archivist or, you know, however you kind of, whatever nomenclature you or label you want to put on it there, then utilizing or leveraging and using your experiences, your collegiate experiences, and even, you know, your, your grade school experiences in music melding that together with just your areas of interest to really kind of create something new. So did you almost essentially kind of create your own kind of role? Or was this like, because you talk about like saying that this, the collection or just kind of like the documenting of hip hop culture wasn't something that was being done. It was something that needed to be done that you saw important. So did you kind of, when you look at that, Right, like you did a new thing that hadn't mm -hmm. been done before, mm -hmm. but then in that, like, did a new role come out of that, or just like more responsibilities because you did yeah. this now? Were you kind of creating your own sort of path? Absolutely, um, there was no space at the time, mm -hmm. you know, like, there wasn't, there wasn't a, a place for this work, um, and so with the shift that's beautiful though is like, I had to kind of fight a little hard, you know, to a certain degree to, to get American history on board with hip-hop. The difference is in this museum, and you know, fast forward a number of years, but I didn't have to fight at all. It was always part 
of the DNA here. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. And that's a beautiful you know, shift um, in the way that this museum is embracing of more contemporary stories. And that's really like the lane that I'm in right now. So thinking about um, not just hip hop, but you know, music and performing arts writ large, but more of just contemporary culture. And what I'm really interested in is two sides of that coin, one being the, the actual content, mm -hmm. the contemporary stories, the artifacts, the, the more modern history um, documentation. Because, you know, especially when you're talking about black artists and performing arts, um, those stories that we wish we had from the development of jazz and development of blues and the creation of rock and roll and, you know, all that shit, we can't get to the primary sources much of the time because they weren't documented. Hmm. Like, there's no, you know, um, oral history interview that's an extensive conversation with Billie Holiday. Right. It doesn't exist. Right. Um, so what historians have had to do with those types of music and, you know, theater and film and television, everything, um, is piece things together to create primary sources written by people who didn't live those experiences. Hmm. Okay? What we have to the, it, now, which is available to us, and not just, again, not just hip-hop, but all these, uh, these styles of music and, and ways of, of, of performance and creativity and art being expressed, the people who are um, at the front of a lot of these are still here. They are living. I can sit down with Nona Hendricks and do an extensive interview and get her stories and create that primary source. Mm -hmm. And that's what this museum is doing in a lot of ways. So it's the content, right? It's the, it's the more contemporary culture and being not content, documented. Not content as in like, hey, we're going to watch this video or this film. It's content as in a contextual narrative, a thread, a story. Mm -hmm. And making sure that the objects that are being collected um, are the ones that represent those stories. So are, do you create the stories, or is it kind of like a brief that kind of comes in top from bottom here, you know what I mean, and saying, like, all right, we want this, and are you now figuring out how you can piece this story together and put the right elements in it to tell it? Right, like, because you're not telling the story, you're helping the story to be told, if, mm -hmm. yep. if, I, if I can say that right. Yep. So it's more of like, all right, well, we know that this is a goal for 2018. So, you know, right, it being January in 2017, you might look at rolling something out November of this year. So right now, are you kind of like gathering those pieces to tell the story, you know, based off of a brief? Like, how does, mm -hmm. how does that actually kind of work? It's, it's both. Um, it is the same way we assembled the collections here from the beginning because we didn't have anything when we started. We had zero artifacts. Mm. Now we have almost 40,000. It's a lot. Only 3,500 of them fit in the building. So it's, it's both going out like an example I always use. It's the most, and that, this gets back to the other kind of side of the coin when I'm talking about um, curating contemporary culture where it's also the methodology mm. is different. It, the contemporary methodology to do the work, you know, so the ways that the spaces that I'm going to to collect, like the, the commercial for the Smithsonian, look, one of the stories out of four or five is me backstage with Rakim at a hip hop show. The, the Smithsonian is demonstrating, like, look, we are in these spaces. Yeah. You know, and then you see the microphone on display. So it tells that really quick story. So the, the, the places and the spaces that I'm existing in while doing the work are non traditional, essentially, for not just the Smithsonian, but for curators and museum people in general. So then it's also, so it's doing the work, 
first of all, and, and kind of carving out new places that, um, you know, are maybe not are always as welcoming to like the Smithsonian, a federal institution coming on board mm -hmm. or coming in. Um, then also the more contemporary ways that these stories are being shared. So digital curation, you know, is a, is a brand new field. Um, not just, and I don't mean just mean virtual exhibitions. Right. You know, that's part of it, but it's also sharing content digitally on social media. Right. And it's you know thinking about how to um, present these stories in as many different ways as possible to reach as many different audiences as possible. So when I say like curating contemporary culture, like it is both of those things. It's the it's the content, it's the subject matter, it's the themes that are that are contemporary, but it's also matching that with more contemporary ways of doing the work. Hmm. Right, so um, when we were putting together the collection, and I, you know, there are twenty-some people on the curatorial teams, and we, you know, worked collaboratively. A lot of people had, you know, curated their own spaces. You know, I worked as museum specialist in curatorial affairs to support um, uh, multiple teams, and so I have objects in eight of the eleven exhibitions, hmm. primarily on the culture floor. Right. Um, but you know, I, the work that I did, my name does not appear, but, but the work that I did is all over the building, and that is an amazing thing yeah. to 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 be a part of. But um, it's a combination of when assembling the collections, knowing you want something, and finding a way to get it because it's a story that you really want to tell. So like the Jay Dilla equipment, yeah. right? I, was, I, I haven't even got there yet. That's I know, four, you have to go to the fourth, the fourth floor. floor yeah. yep. I mentioned that because that was the most um, virtually shared announcement we've ever had. Mm. Because if you think about the audience that, that knows what that is, who knows what that represents, and it's also this notion of surprise. Yeah. So you have a more contemporary audience sharing this announcement. The Smithsonian is recognizing Jay Dilla, yeah. right? And then and they're like, "This is amazing. We embrace this." And then there are people who are like, "Wait, what?" Not in a bad way, but just right. like, "Wait, like really?" Yeah. You know. I mean, I think like that that fan base, that following is is pretty subcultural, if you will. Yeah. You know. It's, but they're tuned into social media. They're right. tuned into you know these virtual spaces. Right. Um, so with that, you know. We had the blessing to kind of shoot for the stars with mm. the stories we wanted to try to get and capture, and that was one of mine. Hmm. You know, was, so it's actively going out, but then it's also these amazing things that that come to us and present stories we never even knew we needed to tell. So, so I mean, you touched on a few things, right? Like, it's kind of like a double question, like. The path that you've kind of created, and where you're at, right? And in, in, in regards to the last thing we were talking about, and like, this wasn't something that existed. Trying to fit you in a box of like, okay, has your management or have any of your superiors had that problem with like trying to fit? Like, what 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 department yeah. does she? Okay, so that's a problem. Not that it's a. Bad I mean, it's not problem. a big problem in terms of like where I exist in departmentally. It's more like. Okay, now what is now what? Right. Okay. <laughs> now we're open. Now what? So was that was that all intentional or is it something that kind of happened? And I ask that because we talk about like goals and planning and you know coming and, and I, I talk about that in the podcast as well outside of just doing these interviews because looking at creatives, looking at artists, you know, and and having managed some creative people before, like that's a very very big 
um, in my opinion, a very, very big thing that has to happen is, is goal setting and planning. Mm -hmm. And then obviously you have to take action. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, and that's what I say in that episode, the goals episode, I think it's episode two, is, you know, you're almost, once you set a goal, not only is the universe going to transpire to make that happen, but then you're also like, in my opinion, writing yourself a contract, mm -hmm. you know? So you're kind of holding yourself accountable, like, hey, damn, I wrote this down. Like, you know, it's really up to yeah. you, like, if you're going to fall, if you're going to fall through with it or not. So, you know, was this path intentional of like where you are now, how this has all happened? Is it something that you kind of set goals and kind of plan to do? Like even coming out of, because I think it's really, really interesting. Like if I was to put you in a, I hate boxes, but if I was to put you in a box, it's like, you're a, and this is a bad box because it's, it doesn't, the box doesn't exist, right? But it's like, you're a, and it's not a bad box in a bad way. Um, it's, you're like a creative and cultural historian. Mm -hmm. You're a creative and cultural curatorial historian. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like, you have the actual, like, when, when I say, and that's why I said creative and cultural, because you look at, you didn't really study fine arts, right? Mm -mm. So, but you have, like, a little bit of a knowledge coming from yeah. the Smithsonian. So, looking at that, a little bit of that background, but then you actually have, like, a, a heavy music background, and then you have a history background. So, you actually have the context to how things have happened and shaped. So, and then, at the same time, you're able to like you said, something that you touched on that's really, really key is 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 content and telling and, and, and putting, not even telling, putting together a narrative. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what comes together. Putting together a narrative is, is curating, mm -hmm. in my opinion. So, yep. you know, it's kind of like, how are you going to tell this story? What me, What's your medium going to be? You know, is it going to be this exhibition? Is it going to be this pot? Like, whatever the case may be, you know, that's that you have to curate that. Mm -hmm. And people look at the word curate and you think of it in, in grand grand art schemes and grand um, creative schemes, right? And it's sometimes the word gets overused. That's my pet peeve. Um, <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm a curator. I curated the play. I curated the music. I'm a curator really? of vibes. You made a playlist. Like. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it's like curating music is like, it's, I think it goes down to a lot of different things. You know, you have to find out. It's, it's, it's really just kind of, it's problem solving. Yeah. You know, finding, all right, what's the challenge? We want to get more... We want to just have a better vibe in here. <laughs> All right, well, what, what direction do you want the vibe to be in? Well, we kind of want to... So you have to figure out, like, yeah, anybody can select songs to play all day. But it's really being able to... When I look at a curator, it's really putting together an actual experience. Mm -hmm. Whether that's something that you see on TV, something that you come to live, something that you hold in your hand, something that you eat, how they give you your napkin at the restaurant, right. the menus that they use, the T-shirts that they're wearing. If they're not wearing T-shirts, they're all wearing, you know, a maitre d', like, uh, uh, like tuxedo, whatever the case may be. So, it, you know, was all this intentional? I'm sorry, that was a long ass. Yeah, question. no, totally. But it's like, you know, looking at the goal setting, the planning, and just kind of where you are now. Like, did you plan this just happen, or like, yeah. you know? I mean, to be honest, up until about a month after opening, nothing was intentional. Hmm. Because it was such um, an all hands on deck, we need this shit to open on time. We are all just doing, I mean, not just me, everybody. We're all here to do the work and we really like don't have time to see beyond that. Like this project is never going to, like something like this will never happen again. Right. 
ever. Right. And so that that has been the focus, and that has been the um, the goal, right? Get this museum open. Just do it. And now, and just now, and in fact, very recently, it's like okay, we've caught our breath a little bit. You know, we've. And you still have And I'm not like at all. I'm so crazy. Still until <laughs> April, like. Yeah, and I mean, and you see how many people are coming through and you know, the, the folks that I'm, and like that's the whole other element, right? Like, um, I'm not a tour guide by trade, but because I have, because I spent three and a half months doing object install, I could probably tell you where every single artifact is in this entire building. Right. And so to be able to give thorough tours, I mean, I didn't curate any of the history galleries. I didn't, you know, have a hand in the military gallery, minus object install. But I can talk about the spaces. I can talk about the stories because I've experienced them coming together from from the very beginning. Yeah. Hearing my colleagues talk about them, um, watching them go from paper to objects to cases to physical space, you know, um, and that means that a lot of people want that experience. And so part of what we've all been doing is like playing tour guide. Yeah. You know, and get people in and get people excited. I mean, Killer Mike was here last night. And I saw that. He actually had, was supposed to go to a show, and he was, like, low-key thankful that it got canceled because it meant he could spend more time <laughs> you have to, in the I museum. Mean, now, he's not, I'm not saying that he was glad the show was canceled at all. They will reschedule. But it's like, okay, now I don't have to rush. Right. You know? You can't rush through this. You can't rush through it. I rushed through it, the opening thing. That opening night, yeah. I mean, I didn't really rush through it. It just kind of happened, and then Stevie. Wonder that was more out. of an experience, yeah. of itself than, yeah. than like taking time with the content. Right, and it was really tough to like battle. Like, dang, do I want to like hear Dave Chappelle tell some dope jokes and like hear this band play, or do I want to see? Go what see this Paul Robeson's passport. Like, yeah. Right. So then I like did a little bit of both, and then I got a text. So Stevie went. I was like, wait, what? And yeah, exactly. So immediately exactly. rushed down, but yeah. I mean, I think that that's that's dope. So so, but to answer your question, so. Um, up until recently, I haven't really had um, that kind of perspective where I think I would I would have been able to create this plan, yeah. if you will. Um, you know, it's only been in the past couple of weeks where I've really been like, okay, yeah, now what? And and how are we all as a department and as a museum, and how are we working together, and what are the collaboratives, and you know, collaboration is not collaborative. Um, but then, what are we all contributing? Like, what is my value added here. Um, and that's where this kind of notion of contemporary culture, I think, really comes into play. Um, and looking ahead at what this museum has promised to do mm -hmm. and how we will be able to fulfill those promises. Yeah. You know, um, using the, the, the world that I exist in in terms of material culture, right? Three dimensional artifacts and you know, archival collections and sound recordings and all of these amazing objects that tell these stories. Mm -hmm. While, like we were talking before, like I think about, in terms of the primary stories, primary sources, I think about what are the stories that people doing this work in 200 years are going to need in order to accurately represent this time period. Hmm. And I say this time period meaning like the recent recent history. Right. Right? Who is this generation's Bernice Johnson Reagan? Hmm. That kind of shit is what I think about. And who is out there doing the work and whose stories need to be preserved. Are you is it important for you and you say who is out there doing the work or is it important for you to be in the streets and be in the field and know what's happening or do you have like 
people dedicated to doing that. And I mean, I think culturally, you, you kind of know things that are going on and happening, like you're not in a rabbit hole by any means. Mm -hmm. So like, does that play a big part into like... It plays a huge part. I mean, that's kind of the conversation about um, being present in non-traditional spaces for this work. Non-traditional spaces for, for curators or, you know, people like me, um, not formally a curator here, but um, it is not backstage at, you know, Essence Festival. It's not, those aren't the places where people have gone to do the work, but that is where I get a lot of work done. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of networking, it's a lot of relationship building, and a lot of maintaining relationships. Exactly. And yeah. that's, that is the key part, and, and especially for me, to be perfectly honest, as a white girl from northern Wisconsin, working at the Black Museum, talking about contemporary culture, primarily and music and performing arts and hip-hop. And rap, yeah. You know, like, I am not what people expect to walk in the door. And my name's Timothy. And your name is just Timothy. for fun. Yeah. Let's just throw that on there too. <laughs> they expect a black man to come through the door at the, at, the, at those meetings, and that that has happened to me. You know, where the the they think I'm the assistant. It's crazy. You know, and I'm a young wo woman. Well, I mean, I'll be 37 in April. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't fit <laughs> the mold of what is expected, but that works in my favor. Yeah. A lot of the time, like so many people, you know. And I won't name names, but some people come in for these private tours, right? And they are Snapchatting and they're doing whatever. And then I, you know, I've gone back to look at it like a Periscope or something. And all the comments are like, "What is this white woman doing talking about Black history?" Wow. You know, and and the people come in, and initially I get the like, mm, "Not so sure about you," but then fast forward to the end of the experience, and it's like, it doesn't know, matter. You know your shit. And that's, that's a beautiful thing to me um, because, so, because what they're doing is they're paying attention to what I'm saying even close. They are paying more close attention to what I'm saying because like they want to catch me slip up yeah. or that, you know what I mean? Like they're like super interested and not in a bad way. I'm not saying that people are coming with bad vibes, right. but it's like, it's unexpected. Right. And so I get their attention or, you know, to have, you know, I, I owe somebody like Chuck D so much in terms of um, being able to do the work that I'm doing because to have him say, sure, I'm going to, yep, Public Enemy's legacy, absolutely, here you go. Hmm. Considering all of the things, yeah. you know, um, and that we're a federal organization and all, the, all of this, you know, Elbeth, he saw the vision for the museum. Hmm. And to have the, the belief and trust in um, people who are major influencers in these communities from the very beginning mm -hmm. has made it possible. But again, it's these non-traditional spaces. Yeah. And I've had to not fight my way in necessarily, but I've had to demonstrate Prove that yourself. I'm dedicated. Yeah. And that I'm not just showing up for the party and getting the stuff. Thank you very much for your life's, you know, legacy. Have a nice rest of existence. I'm out. Like that's not how this works. You're building. Mm -hmm. How important is, I mean, cuz I've seen you hustling I'm wait. I'm trying to even remember. Okay, I remember when we met. But even after we met, and I remember um, this past summer, I'm on the train on my way to Afropunk. I hear my name, 
Oh. <laughs> you look different because your hair is down. Yeah, you don't have your glasses oh, yeah. on. I'm like, yo, who's this white woman calling me? <laughs> like, I don't fucking know you. And I turn around. And you're like, what's up? And I'm like, who are you? And I'm like, oh, shoot, what's up? And, and then fast forward to actually being at Afropunk. Uh, I was there working as well. Um, and then I, I didn't, I, you said you were going there. I was like, okay, cool. Didn't really know, didn't even actually really know too much of what your role was here right. after what, like April or May in DC when Rob had his show right. at um, the Arc, and mm -hmm. then we did the after hours thing. And we talked a little bit, and it was like, okay, cool, you work at the museum. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And then you're, like I said, we're at Afropunk backstage, and you're like, yeah, I gotta go talk to so and so. Galant's amazing. This person's dope. Da, da, da. I'm gonna go to, and I'm like, all right, what is she doing? <laughs> but like, I see you hustling, and you said something that's important is you know being able to build that and have that trust with these people. You know what I mean? And I don't know everything that happens and, and that's said in the conversations, mm -hmm. but I see the proactivity, and that's not a word, I see you being proactive um, and making that happen. And then from there, being able to, not only are you being proactive, now you've, you've kind of forged the relationship, and then now you actually have a value add for whoever you're going up to and approaching and talking. And at this time, the museum wasn't even open. No. So, you know, you're, it's, that was in August, end of August, um, and then I've seen you and other, when we were in Atlanta, like, you're just always, Hustling and how important do relate? I mean, you touched on a little bit, but how important do relationships play a part in just kind of where you've gotten to? You know, we talk about goal setting, we talk about just doing like there's a lot of things I talk about outside of just like you know, talking to people and having dialogue mm -hmm. about their creativity on the podcast. But you know, a lot of people don't understand that things happen based off of relationships. If you're able to close mm -hmm. somebody, that's amazing, cool, close them, get a sale. And getting a sale means like you just lock something in, not necessarily selling anybody right. anything. But, you know, okay, cool, you close them, but a lot of these things happen over time. It's yeah. not it's yeah. not a just one-off, one-time transactional sort of thing. It can be, right? but like, talk about the importance of the relationship building over time to get to the places. Because I even mm -hmm. remember in Atlanta, you were going to somebody's house to kind of just go through their archives of stuff and what they collected in their hip-hop career and their still existing career and, and bring some stuff back to the museum and just having that trust to go to this person's house. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, how important has that relationship building been as part of the process? It is the, act, like, it's the foundation. Um, you know, and, like, a great example of that is Afropunk. Yeah. So that, that moment where it's Fishbone and it was Living Color and um, guys from Bad Brains, yeah. they're all in the museum. You know, those, I've, I've, I've gotten to know primarily the guys in Fishbone and the guys in Living Color over the past six or seven years because, you know, that was, again, one of those places where they're like, oh, rock and roll. And I was like, cool, here are some alternative narratives to the rock and roll story. So we're gonna go. We're gonna have some death. We're gonna have some Arthur Lee. We're gonna have some bad brains. We're gonna have some living color. You yeah. know, we're gonna you know Michelle and Daguerre. We're gonna talk about Tina Turner and you know all of this shit. Um, and so that was a beautiful moment for me at Afropunk because all of those guys were like, we can't wait for the museum to open in a month hmm. because between that day and you know five or six years prior. They had all kind of, in different moments, um, given items to the museum hmm. because of the relationships that I, going to LA, 
hanging out with people, going to New York, hanging out with people, and just gaining trust and and helping them at that point again see the vision for the museum. Yeah, because that was the that was the key element, and um, it's hard for some creative people to freely um, share their legacy or share their stories the place they can't experience themselves. So that was a big challenge for me. Yeah. I couldn't just come, oh, come see what it's going to be. I couldn't do that. Um, so again, it is, um, for me, first establishing the fact that I, I belong in the conversation. And that's the first hurdle. Yeah. Um, and I recognize that. And I totally... And so anyone who's, you know, apprehensive or, you know, kind of stab out, I'm not mad at them. Like, I get it. I don't get it, as, but I get it. Yeah. You know? You understand like, why. I'm not like, why don't you like me? No. I come, you know, I'm not an idiot. Right. Um, but the relationships that, again, it's about the networking and the hustle, but it's demonstrating that this is, like, we're in this for the long haul. You know? This is not, again thinking about new methods and contemporary methods for the work. 20 years ago, it was more of a transactional nature with a lot of collecting from museums because you only collected from people who could understand that, right? Where it's, you know, oh, sure, my grandfather's shit, whatever. Yeah. It's not mine, um, and I don't need to know you. I just need to know that it's going to be cared for. You're going to give it a place of prestige or whatever. Um, now, it's like... It's not that. It's not a business transaction with a one-time deal. It's over time. It's over time, and it's and it's maintaining because also a lot of these um, individuals, you know, we talk about representation and we talk about you know people um, feeling as though this museum is a truly a place for everyone to see themselves, and for so many communities of people that hadn't existed, that 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 did not exist. Right. You know. For, for so many people to come to any of the Smithsonian museums and see themselves was impossible. Right. And that's the opposite case here. And so we want to maintain that identity and that representation and make sure that people understand that we value their investment in us. Right. And so it's not just the rock stars. You know, it's the everyday people who've contributed artifacts as well. I have a number of you know, places in the museum that I have artifacts, or that, that there are artifacts that I've collected that you know, are not household names. But their stories are just as important. And but right. how do I demonstrate to them, you know, how we are invested in them as well? Absolutely. So it's it's I mean, relationship building is absolutely key. And it comes with its, you know, perks in the this field, of course, you right. know. I think I think that that gets missed in a right. you know, right? Like it's a little different now and we're older now, so we understand it. But you look back like the early two thousands, mid mid first decade you know uh 2007 8 9 10 and and still it still happens i'm sure it's very very dry here like there's still like a, a in new york there was like a whole like thing about like networking events right mm-hmm. so people when you when you hear the word networking it's just kind of and i when i hear it i kind of like cringe because it yeah. has a negative sort of thing but like you're you think of like oh here's my card here's my card yeah, yeah. and like yeah. you know there is there is definitely an aspect in kind of like the relationship building of networking right so it's like oh hey i'm so-and-so because people always want to know hey what do you do and like that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of life but like so that's a, yeah that's like a western <laughs> civilization sort of thing like where we just ask people what do you do and that kind of we put them in that box um and we want but, to understand how much power we can get from them and exactly. how much power we have over them 
Exactly. And then, but then, like, for you, it's more like people understand that, like, yeah, you're backstage and we're having fun and kicking it. But, like, there's an objective that you have. And it's not you sitting here with an ulterior motive, like, ooh, I'm going to get you. And right. This. It's more <laughs> yeah, of, like... The, the, the scheming part of yeah, it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, really, it's really psychological. It's really relationship building. Mm -hmm. It's building that trust. And actually, like, really forming an actual relationship um, to figure out, you know, if there's a... And it might there might not be a point of connectivity, but that's just yeah. a risk you have to take with your time and just saying, all right, right. well... If I don't end up doing something with this person, I'll be able to build and just be, you know, at the end of the day, I'll have a new person that's mm -hmm. different and that does this. You know, so people always a think like we're... a lot of like waiting. Yeah. And you have a to be whole very lot of waiting. A whole lot of waiting. People think we're, like we're out here kicking it no. because we're like, no, yeah, like we're well, fun. I mean, the other part of it is also like, I mean, I if I'm at a show, right, um, uh, the first label I get is like a groupie or a manager or, uh, you know, whatever, right? So I have all of these ways that I have to operate differently and behave differently in order to um, demonstrate that that's not why I'm there. Right. Other than wrong with being a groupie or being a manager or whatever, it's fine. Um, so like people like this past uh, the most deaf shows, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's New Year's Eve. Everyone's drinking champagne and hanging out, and it's like, yeah, I had a glass of champagne backstage. But like, I'm not going to Afropunk and getting shit faced. Right, and you weren't. You know, at all. I saw I, it. And I don't, that's not why I'm there. Right. If I'm going to be at a show and I'm going to go with my friends and do whatever, then I'm going to be out in the audience. Yep. And I'm not going to be seen by my colleagues and peers doing that. Behaving that way. Because it's work. This because is work. Because it's work. Stuff. And I mean, it's amazing work. And I love it. And it is awesome to have, yeah, what's his name doing the magic tricks? Like, or whatever. Those David moments. Yo, like, what crazy. is going on? That was, I just, I literally just thought about that. Like, do I still have that on my phone? Because I, I had a phone issue. So I lost a lot of stuff. When he did it with your watch and the yeah, thing. Yeah, I've got the video of that one. Yeah. I, oh, man. That was crazy. For the, so we're talking about backstage. <laughs> we met David Blaine at Afropunk. And he did I never believed in magic he made me a believer 100%. and something just appeared underneath my wrist and he wasn't even doing a magic trick on me I just was a bystander and happened to, <laughs> I don't I, yeah it's not I, up I my, have a video of you like so you've got your phone and you're recording right, the whole yeah, thing, yeah, that's and what I, I have saw, a video yeah, of you yeah. where you look literally like you look down at your wrist and you're like it was crazy. It was insane. It was crazy. We'll find a way yeah. to like but people think, tweet that or something right. so people can see what we're talking that's, about. Yeah, yeah. That's that's also like a workable moment, right? Because mm -hmm. you have like David Blaine doing a Robert doing a magic trick for Robert Glasper, then you have like Thundercat sitting right there. I don't yeah. know if Fly Low. Whose mind around. was blown by right. the whole thing. Yeah. Everybody I mean it was like this crowd of people, but like, you know, I don't know if you had met David Blaine there, but then now that's like you now have this content. Right. If right. you want to even take it that far to say, this is my experience at Afropunk. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you might be able to actually curate something with David Blaine or Who not. Knows? Right. Or or say or with Robert Glassford or Thundercat or um, Gallant mm -hmm. or whoever. So, yeah, like you're kicking it with these people over time. And then, you know, maybe the initial goal or objective is to say, hey, we would love to get. Uh, something that you wore, whatever, whatever, as an artifact or as just part of this, mm -hmm. this sort of thing that we're putting together. But then, furthermore, looking at it, even like you bringing in the, the the Chuck D relationship, and you know that went back a few years. Now you have Public Enemy, him and Flavor Flav, playing at the opening concert on mm -hmm. the mall. 
-hmm. you know, so you're add you're able to actually add value outside of just whatever your initial sort of transactional, right. you know, sort of objective is, which is really really dope. And I get I, again, I think that gets missed, you know, yeah. like it's funny. Well, and even like my colleagues are like, why is she doing all these things? Right. But then they're like, oh my gosh, that was so amazing that we had, you know, whatever, and they they. They get it. It takes, you know, but it, it takes, takes time. It takes time, especially with art, especially with, not just with artists. Artists, yes, but like artists that are celebrities that have a very, very big platform that mm -hmm. are, you know, people stop them in the street and ask them to take pictures and stuff like right. that. Like, you know, because it's almost like, what? Who are you? What do you want from me? Right. You know, so that stuff really, really takes time and. I think really, you know, I get that a lot, but people think we're out here kicking it, mm -hmm. you know? Like, yeah, we kick it, but like, this is work. This is work. You know? Somebody, it's funny because people send me, people, like, I, you probably get this all the time, what do you do, what do you do, you know? And mm -hmm. I, for a long, I didn't really, like, I knew you helped with a lot of the preservation, I knew you managed a lot of relationships and kind of getting a lot of the, uh, in hip hop um, and music culture, just kind of managing and, and liaising those relationships with the Smithsonian. Um, but fully, I didn't have a grand understanding. I just was like, all right, I know she put together this concert. <laughs> I know she does. You're not a tour guide, but you take people on tour sometimes. I know you do this. So I couldn't really wrap my head around it. But I say all that to say, like, it was just funny. I get emails and people approach me, hey, let's, I want to work with you and da-da-da-da. And I don't know what people have in their minds of what they think. Right. So I'll take a call. I'll take a meeting, figure out if I can help them. And... Um, I'll send somebody a proposal and then I won't hear from them. Right. And I'll send them a proposal of how I can help them, how we can work together, whatever the case may be. And I, and I think people get appalled when I send them a proposal with a butt with an estimate. Mm -hmm. Like, listen, you know what I mean? Like this there's is a job. A, yeah, this is a this, this is, is there's this a work. value behind this. Right. Or else you wouldn't be hitting me up. Right. So yeah, I'm out kicking it and doing whatever, <laughs> but like please believe there's a reason I'm there. Yeah. Sometimes I might be there just because, all right, I want to take a day off and do whatever. But more than likely, when I get there, my head starts, oh, shoot, okay, I can do this, we can do this. And it's not an ulterior motive. Right. It's figuring out how you can continue to create and build a relationship and add value to something, which mm -hmm. I think is really, really dope. And that's just an art in itself, and you've obviously, like, mastered that. So, like, how much of – because you're, you're here now. Like, I remember you told me the Lupita Nyong'o story mm -hmm. about um, – when you were taking her and a group on a, on a tour, and um, then you like told her to turn around and like the dress that she wore mm -hmm. and Twelve, 12 Years, Years a Slave, Slave. Mm -hmm. was right there, and she just kind of like lost it, you know? Like that's like that's I was I wish I could, like I'm I'm a visual person, so I'm, when you're telling me that I'm like visualizing like what that looks like, like mm -hmm. how did that happen? What was her experience? You know what I mean? Like and and what was her emotions like in that time? Um, but again, that's, you know, and I don't know if you had a previous relationship with her, but that's like dope to like hear that and thinking about that like creatively and how you've got to where you are, you know what I mean? And understanding like, and, and I think it all kind of goes together, right? You're in all these different music spaces. Mm -hmm. You're backstage and it's, it's and I'm not glor, I mean, I'm not yeah, I know, that, I know. whatever. You're backstage with this person, you're doing this with this person, but like, which goes what goes further in the relationship building phase is you're actually able to relate to these people because of your music background. Right. And then even like, you know, the the and you said you got out of music theory, but the music theory background <laughs> you played. So now outside of us, like, you know, at the show at the Arc and then we go to the Gibson afterwards and kick it, 
you know, like now it's like, dang, I don't know what conversation you have with Robert about <laughs> playing piano. Because, yeah. like, you yeah. know, you're not just a person that's like, hey, yeah, you know, and I didn't even know you worked for the museum at that point. Right. But it's just like, wow, like now it gives more context to the conversation that you're able to have mm -hmm. and the relatability that you're able to have, which I think is really, really key. Um, as far as like being able to create your own space, mm. like, do you see yourself as when we look at it from a curatorial arm of it? Like, what's been the toughest thing that you've done so far? And like, do you see do you see yourself moving out of like this is a public sector, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a government, a government entity, a nonprofit. Do you see yourself moving out of that and going into more of a traditional music, traditional art, traditional his history space. Not mm -hmm. to say like, are you going to leave the museum? Right. But like, right. maybe you know, offshoot on the to side and kind of do something. your own project on the side while you still operate yeah. here. I mean, the this place to me, I can't imagine leaving it. Like, I just can't. Um, so there's there's that part of it, like the. The connections and the, the it goes back to relationships and the trust that people have had in me to, you know, I've had multiple people tell me, and I'm not, you know, brushing off my shoulder too much, but like that they're giving this story to the museum, but they're also giving it to me to take care of. Hmm. So it's a very personal thing, you know, like it's not like the cat, like the un with the understanding that I will always be here, and that's the only reason they're giving it, not at all. But it's just like, it's a combination of those two things, the Smithsonian and what we are and what we do, but then also like, it's, a, it's based on that relationship. Right. And so for me, personally and professionally, it would be very hard to leave these stories behind um, and to separate from them. Not because I'm territorial and don't trust other people with them, yeah. but because it just, but I mean, it makes it sense. It means so much. It makes sense because you're creative and you say you're not territorial, but like, but I am it means so much. This is your baby. Yeah. It's just like if you were about to write a song or put out an album, like, you're not just going to just give it to anybody to do or you're not just going to just put it out. Like, no. it's your baby. Yeah. And the fact that you've had so much, you've been so involved in this opening and, you know, this coming to life and other parts of the museum whether it's an exhibition, whether it's an artifact, whatever the case may be, like you, you've had a hand in it. So, don't I, I shouldn't say you, I, I would say you shouldn't not say territorial. Like, no, I, I mean, the I, I am, yeah. I am protective, and I am, you know, like by nature, of course, we all are for our work. Yeah. And just so happens that my work is this very visible, you know, most visited museum in the world right now. Place. It's dope. If you guys haven't been here, you need to come. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a couple more questions to yeah, get you yeah. out, but go ahead. You've had who? Oh, no. We've had um, almost, I, I want to say, at least around 700,000 people come through the doors since we opened. Wow. It is legitimately, like, blowing every visitorship at any museum out of the water. Um, yeah. But, no, so to answer your what's challenging question um, in a very general way, I think one of the things that I, um, challenges that I am starting to now the challenge I'm now starting to embrace more and more is positioning a lot of these stories that are associated with performing arts, music, um, again, you know, this kind of collective of artistic expression in a public space, and positioning them to be considered um, just as important or um, scholarly as anything else in the museum. Hmm. And 
you know, the, the idea that, you know, like the fourth floor of culture, right, has music, it has all these wonderful things, and the idea that that is the, that is the place where you let your mind, you know, go and you don't have to think and you just enjoy. I mean, to me, that's bullshit. Number one, because if you read what we're what we're doing, yeah. we're connecting all of that artistic expression to the history, to the activism, to the stories that you know you you learn about, but that are consistently presented through this more academic lens. Yeah, and so a challenge that I'm excited about is being able to use what we're doing here to to get people to think about these ways people are creating art and expressing themselves um, just at, to be just as important as the book that someone wrote hmm. or the speech that someone gave. Hmm. So you, know you guys I mean? are you guys want to serve as not only as like historical context and providing information and education, but at the same time being inspirational. Absolutely. So you guys are essentially like promoting creativity here. Yeah. Oh, I love it. This yeah. is amazing. I mean, because why, I mean, space. why, you know, so not to be all Chuck, but you know, they aired the special last night and Chuck did a verse from Fight the Power acapella and President Obama was saying every word right, right with him, you know, mm. and he had the whole Kennedy Center say, you know, fight the power yeah. multiple times, right? And that was a, that's an, that's a powerful moment. Yeah. Um, so how is how is that song going to be looked at in a hundred years? You know, we look at writers and authors and poets and their legacies, um, but what's on the written page in a publication is just by default taken more seriously or perceived in a different way than what is expressed vocally. Hmm. Hmm. Is there going to be a shift? Right. You know, so the people who are delivering the same messages, right? They're, Chuck and James Baldwin are connected. Right, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But what is Chuck's body of work? How will that be interpreted? Versus what is, wow. You know what I mean? I would never, I mean, that's why I love art because it's just open for interpretation, right? And creative expression is open for interpretation. And like when you say, you just kind of give and I don't know if that's the the mission or the vision here at the museum, but when you talk about like getting people to think differently about it, like that's how I just approach a lot of things that I do and mm -hmm. how I wanna how I go about and how I wanna separate myself is just I think differently and whatever I do, whatever I attach myself to, mm -hmm. however I do it, I wanna do it differently so I can get people to think differently about mm -hmm. about it. Because I might be doing a wine podcast, you know, I mean I might have I may be doing the same thing Gary Vee's doing, but you know, I might take a different approach to make you think differently about right. it. You right. know, which I think is really, really key because when you get people to think differently, that's when change comes. Mm -hmm. Or it's just even, you know, giving people the chance to get there on their own, mm -hmm. but opening their eyes to it. I mean, and it's not just written versus, you know, oral. It's, you know, even the sonic, we talked in the very beginning about this kind of sonic thread, and you look at, you know, um, <laughs> like Kendrick's last project, right? Like, he is, by incorporating funk music sonically in that whole album, that is a statement in of itself. Yeah. You know, funk music, for all intents and purposes, is a form of protest music. Yeah. <clears throat> and so he's not straight out coming at you saying, I am doing this, but you hear it. You hear the sonic connections, and if you understand the relationship 
you get what that means and what that represents. Yeah. Never mind that he's also like completely flipping the script on that record because he's sampling himself on his own record featuring George Clinton, who is the most sampled artist. And so he's sampling a sample he created right. in the same space. And it's just yeah. this like, you know. So I mean, musically, there's the, you have the musical element to that and then you have going with that then you have like the lyrical mm -hmm. element to that and the expression in that and what's the meaning right you know, but i mean in hip-hop we focus so much on the words some there people are people some people now do people right just focus on what it sounds like right there but there are people who are making decisions about the sounds that have a much deeper meaning than what yeah. is heard on the surface level yeah you know the way that and it's not just, I'm not just talking sampling and, you know, connections to history. That's a huge part of it, of course. But, like, this notion of creating a balance between the, the words and, and the sounds. Yeah. And, and having both be elevated in the same kind of way is really incredible. And that's, you know, but again, that's not in, in a book someone can go look, look up and, you know, read about. So, therefore, is it scholarly? Right. Right. I think, I mean, there's a lot, like, educationally that you can get out of this museum, even what is at the second floor. Mm -hmm. Is it the second floor? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the just, resource that's not center. even really, that's not even really a, I mean, it's a floor, but it's not really like an exhibition. Like, it's very minimal on um, what you kind of get out of there as far as, like, seeing a museum. But it's very, very educational. Mm -hmm. It gives you the history of, like, even something like stepping, which is a very, very big thing in the, in the uh, BGLO space. And, and then it just was a really cool interactive, too. right? Like, it was yeah. a cool interactive, and then that goes the roots of that probably go back to slavery, but horse, like whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and I didn't go through the whole thing to know that, but yeah, like I think that that's even interesting, like that educational element. But then also, like when you look at when you tie in the creativity to it, like you were saying, the last time I was here on one of the floors in the basement, there was a video component that I did, and I'm mad because I didn't save the video, I thought I saved it. It didn't save, so it's gone, essentially. Well, it's probably here somewhere, but mm -hmm. um, they give you a certain amount of days to save it um, mm -hmm. and, you you know, to publish it before they say it's off the server. And I think it was, like, a question of, like, talking about, like, slavery or something. And there's this interactive video component, which was really, really dope. And then I, as I went to another part of the museum, um, I saw a similar thing, mm -hmm. but I like the interactivity that you guys have with the uh, parishioners or the guests, the people that are coming to the museum, mm -hmm. I think it's really, really dope. Um, and and your like to your point of getting people to think differently, mm -hmm. I think that's really, really dope as well. And just creative, you know, like it's not your. I've been to the Louvre, I've been to the Prado Museum, I've been to Joan, Mir like I've been to these museums all over the world, and like I haven't really gotten that. You know, you right. just kind of get more historical, but like you get interact. It's very, very relevant. It's right. a very up-to-date museum, even like this thing closing in the middle of our us talking. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you guys are eco-friendly, so yep. it's not just this structure that's going to be here for hundreds of years and millions of years to come. Right. It's like you guys are really, really making impact, and it's great to have like people like you involved that are relevant and know what's going on. You know, I'm sure you have peers that are 10, 20, 30 years older than you that you work with. You know, and they don't, they're out of touch, you know, which... Rightfully so, whatever. Um, you know, they're gonna be they're gonna be in, in the lanes that they're gonna be in. But yeah, it's just an interesting space. Mm -hmm. uh, you said something earlier. Just, like two quick questions because yeah. I, I gotta get you out of here. I know you gotta get back to doing what you do, the awesomeness. <laughs> 
He said something earlier. What do you, you, you talked about influence and influencers. What do you think about that word, influencer? Um, you don't really like work in the marketing space, but right, like, but you work with people um, and the people that you bring in here and hip hop and stuff like that and music and then other forms of art, right? And then there's like a whole thing right now of like brands and marketing people mm -hmm. wanting to work with influencers. I'm sure mm -hmm. that there's some of your counterparts here want to figure out how they can get people with a lot of uh, a big Instagram following in the museum to right. do a tour or, you know, post it on social. Um, so what do you just think about that that word and, and just that space right now? Um, I think that this being notion, a creative, yeah, this notion of influencers is complicated mm -hmm. in a couple of different ways. But I think for like the way that, muse that the museum is using those people to our advantage via things like social media, mm -hmm. right? So Kelly Rowland from Destiny's Child was here right. a couple nights ago, brought her through the museum. Amazing, amazing. And she was very, very open to all things social media. Right. She did her own Snapchat. She let the museum do a Snapchat about her visit. You know, was very in a very positively transparent way. Um, and as a result, you know, she she tags us in a post, and then we get hundreds of new followers on Instagram. Hmm. Or the flip, like Jasiri X was just here for a program uh, two nights ago, and. He was like, yo, the museum put a video of me up and instantly I had all a bunch of new followers on Instagram. Because it's it's introducing these, in this case, individuals, yeah. to either a new person or a new place. Yeah. So there are people who follow Kelly Rowland for Destiny's Child or music purposes who are now getting hip to the museum. Yeah. And then on the flip side, people are getting hip to Siri X because of the museum. So that is what we're trying to think about with influencers now. Because what we have to be careful of is having those kinds of people seen on the outside as influencing our work, which we cannot allow for if they are of the topics, hmm. right? So Because of conflict of interest. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so that's where we have to be. It's more advisors. It's more, you know, different, different roles that people actually play. And so that's where this, this influencer thing gets really kind of fuzzy, right? Like you... You don't want someone who's given a ton of money to the museum um, to then be seen as controlling content. Right. Or influencing our content. Right. No, we can't have that. And so we have to kind of keep our distance in a way from some of these relationships um, and use them to both, to the best interests of both parties. Hmm. If that makes, uh, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. I mean, that's a whole, that's, I think it's an interesting space to have to be in. Mm hmm Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't, I never would have, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, just like a lot of churches, a lot of church religious organizations are nonprofits. They can't, on those platforms, in the churches or in those institutions, they can't, like, state their political affiliation or, like, who they're right. voting for and stuff. Like, so I have to remain bipartisan. You yeah. have to be, you know, neutral in a lot of ways and everything. And... The fact that this museum is, you know, partially federally funded, right? You know, that's that's our, that's what we're here to do. It we're makes here sense. to serve all the people. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Two more questions. Since you've been here, and since you've actually been working with the organization um, in general, I mean, you can either answer one, the other, or both. What What's been the dopest thing that you've seen or done? Like, what's been your dopest experience <laughs> um, in this ten years? Wow. 
Um, that would be hard to pick one from all of the different categories of the types of things that I've done or been able to do, you know, been, been a part of. Um, just because it's so fresh in my mind, I'm, I, I mean, I, that opening night on the mall, knowing what it took to get there, um, personally and professionally and collectively with so many people and all the work that everyone had done to come from the president speaking at the front of this building that didn't exist before to living color killing it with cult of personality as the sun is setting behind the monument hmm. and then you know knowing that they took a red eye flight from literally got off the stage in California got on a plane and came here because it was that important to them. Wow. And then Chuck doesn't go down in the crowd, right? He went down in the crowd for Fight the Power when Public Enemy. I, I, and that was the, actually also the day that Bill Nunn passed away, so they dedicated it to him. I remember that. I was in the crowd yeah. and then I came. Okay. I but so that. then, you know, to look out and see almost 50,000 people mm. rocking along to Fight the Power and knowing that seven years. Before that, I was like, Chuck, you guys are going to play the opening. Hmm. He was like, sure, Tab. <laughs> sure, we crazy. will. You know, That's like, crazy. I believe it when I see it kind of thing. And there it was happening. Yeah. You know, and, and same thing like with the roots and the way that they encompass, you know, all of music and every genre and, and just, and the way that they made it a political performance. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, so yeah, so that moment, for me, you know, everyone else is out in the crowd and, and losing their minds, and I'm literally side of the stage, like, bawling. Yeah. I remember, like, I was, I was a, just you, a wreck. And you couldn't speak, your voice was And like, I lost my voice, and, you know, it was just all of these things coming together in this moment. Um, so a lot of people are like, oh, the, the, the opening dedication ceremony and the president, and da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But to me, like, personally, you know, I still had a whole other day of the festival to do on Sunday. Yeah. You know, but that that night, knowing everything that went in to get there, and all of my colleagues who you know produced that festival, and the you know the the people at um, Folklife, you know, who made it happen. Mm -hmm. But like that to me, it's going to be a minute before I have another moment like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that night felt like. It reminded me of the 2009 inauguration mm. when President Obama, like, because I was here for that. Yeah. And that whole weekend was just like, it just felt good. It yeah. was a good weekend. It was yeah. love. It was like, man, like, everybody was smiling. It was cold. It was really cold. Oh yeah. my gosh, it was extremely <laughs> cold. But like, other than that, there wasn't. I got, I got really sick. But other than that, it was a great weekend. And I, I I'll agree. Like that was that night was just epic. And it. it I didn't even, I couldn't even imagine it happening like that. Like, it, with everything, I randomly came down last minute, then, then I'm, I'm backstage with you, and then I'm here. Yeah, it's funny, because Rob texted me, and he's like, can you get me back? And I was like, I don't even, I, right. what? I, and I, I, can't, even, I can't even, like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm here in, like, street clothes, and everybody else has on black tie. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, the after party. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was. Well, that was the other part of it. It was, for me, it was like, there were all of these 
and I, you know, whatever. But there are all these super fancy events happening, right, for super fancy people to celebrate the museum's opening. And that's great. And I was there and, you know, yeah. did my job and happily was, was amazing. But what I was really, what I really wanted was that moment with, like, the, the real people, you know, like, who aren't million-dollar donors to the museum, yeah. who did not make the cut to go to the Kenny Center concert, who, yeah. you know, aren't invited to the reception with the Congress people, whatever. These were, these were the people who made this museum happen. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's like, Dave Chappelle, all that shit's cool, whatever. Like, that's fine. But that's private. That's closed off. Yeah. That's... You know, a but limited the, amount the of people. And that's yeah, the energy what, of D.C. At, in that weekend was just so amazing. That's why I compare yeah. it to just the inauguration weekend. Because, because we was, wanted up the public to be a part of it Yeah. In a, in a powerful way. And I think that that three-day festival, you know, we thought very carefully about presenting and including, you know, stories and individuals who are also in the museum. So even if you couldn't get in opening weekend, you got to experience some of those stories in real time. And it was free. And it was free. Yeah. Yeah. Word, word, dope, dope. That's okay. Last question. We talk about creativity. We talk about age of the creative. Everybody's a creative. I don't talk too much on process. Just talk to how, like, how you get there, I guess, and directly talk about process. What does being a creative mean to you? What's being a creative mean? Because, like, you're, again, like, you're mm. curatorial, historian, cult, like, you're <laughs> creative and cultural, his, like curatorial historian. Mm -hmm. Like what? Like that's creative. Do you know what I mean? Like, what does it mean to you to be a creative? What does being a creative mean? I think that what's really amazing about this work is the freedom to to do creative things with historical subject matter, hmm. and to to creatively create <laughs> um, new lenses for people to experience the stories. And so to me, being a creative is thinking about, um, is to be a free thinker and be open to what other people's interpretations or understandings might, might be, while remaining true to facts and knowledge and, and you know, real life shit. But, but but yeah, creatively presenting this information in a way that is like new and fresh and interesting and you know, like you said, doesn't feel like homework. It doesn't feel like I have to do this. You want to do this. Right. You know, so how can I use my own creativity um, to get people to their own creative space? Hmm. I like that outlook. That's very, very dope. I mean, you just dropped the mic on that one. So <laughs> that, that was dope. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you have a, a lot of things that you have to get back to, and I've taken enough of your time up, so I'm just grateful to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit and, 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 and really, like, share your narrative, share your experience, share the places that you've come from and where you're at now and, and how it's all come together and just sharing your creativity. I'm grateful and appreciative. Thank you so much. Can't get this time back. So 
Thank you. Um, for those, like w real quick, mm -hmm. you know, where can we find you on socials? Like, do you have anything yep. exciting happening? Like, what's your, is it at, what's it Timothy? So, I'm um, on Twitter, it's at Timothy Ann, mm -hmm. with an E. Um, and I am constantly, you know, sharing stuff about the museum, but also some, like, you know, behind the scenes pieces okay. about what it took to get us here and what's happening still. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested in engaging with people about these, you know, moments of experiencing contemporary culture through this historical lens. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. At Timothy, at Timothy Ann. Oh, Timothy Ann on Twitter, yep. on Instagram. Same. Okay. I'm the same. Okay. Snapchat. I see you on Snapchat. You know. We're... I think Snapchat yeah. is different, but. Yeah, I mean, I if they. Yeah. <laughs> Snapchat's not for everybody. Yeah. But okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, at Timothy B, Timothy Ann. Timothy Ann, T-I-M-O-T-H-Y-A-N-N-E. And she faces a lot being a woman named T Timothy. That's so, true. you know, Timothy That's Ann. That's true. <laughs> cool. So yeah, thank you again so much. Thank you guys Absolutely. for listening. Again, continue to give me feedback. Please leave a rating. One star, two star, three stars, four stars, five stars, whatever. Five stars would be appreciated if you really think this is dope. Write a note, um, email me. I'm at creative underscore Ian again on socials. If you need any help creatively, you want to work on anything, you're looking for a creative, hit me up, Ian at END.co. We'll have Timothy's handles in the show notes um, as well as my stuff. So feel free to hit me up. And we got a bunch more coming for you guys in 2017. We're going to keep doing this year and, and really keep going and making things happen. Um, per episode two, the goal is the plan. So I have more coming for you guys. Thank you guys again. Um, and until next time, see you later.